Take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. And as you're turning, let me say how good it is to be back again. Thank you for the hospitality ours receive here. And it's uh, the only sad part of this is I don't get to see Luke when I'm here. I'm here when he's gone. So um, he was always, uh, is a, a uh, favorite of mine. And I always am glad when I get to see him around the seminary. But I always miss again to see him when I come here. Acts chapter 2. I have a rather unusual goal for my life. One of my life goals has long been to live to see and help spread God-given Reformation and revival. Now, Reformation is what we, uh, by the Spirit of God, can do. Uh, We can do things like I was talking to my class this week. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.13 says, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, as you did twice during the service. A lot of churches don't do that. Well, that's something that uh, maybe very uh, this very morning, some of my students, as a result of that class, have changed their worship service this morning. That's Reformation. We can do that uh, by the help of the Holy Spirit. But uh, revival is what God alone, by His Spirit, can do. And by revival, of course, I do not mean a series of meetings uh, announced in advance. It's, it's sad that we've come to think of revival as, uh, as something we can schedule uh, and as a meeting of Christians rather than a moving of God. But revival has been a rather rare thing in the church in America in the last 150 years or so. And when it has occurred, it has been much more isolated and localized and not uh, widespread as it has been on about three occasions in our country's history. And what I'm speaking about this morning, when I use the term revival, is something that almost I'm almost certain none of us in this room, myself included, has ever seen before. But what I have read about it from first-hand accounts makes me long for it more than, more than anything. And this morning as I was driving over, I was listening to uh, a podcast of one of Dr. Moeller's daily radio, uh, or daily briefings, his podcast, um, president of the seminary, and he was just quoting some statistics about, uh, from the last 25 years, and the rapidity, the velocity of the change in viewpoints about issues like homosexuality, uh, whether couples should be married before they have children, and these sorts of things, all of which uh, we're all aware of the dramatic changes, but it was just remarkable to see some statistics about 25 years ago and now. Not only here, but in Great Britain and in places uh, around the world, indicating that uh, revival really is the only hope or else the entire world, not just our nation, but the entire world is plunging into a deeper and deeper darkness from which, of course, no politician, no army, no no ruling, no uh, other human effort can can extricate us. It just makes more clear that revival is the only hope. Revival goes so far beyond any previous encounter any of us have ever had with, with God that if it weren't for these first-hand accounts, it would, it would be, um, we would say it's, it's fantasy. It's not, it's not true. And many of us can remember times in 
churches in series of meetings perhaps we can look back and say i remember a time we had a series of meetings for a week or two weeks something like that and a great number of people were saved i've never never seen anything like that before or after god did these dramatic things and and we remember those occasions and and praise god for those for those memories nevertheless that also is not quite what i'm referring to But it is a movement of God and an intensity of experience with God that goes so far beyond really what I'm sure almost anyone in this room, myself included, has experienced. And if it weren't for these uh, many published accounts, and I've heard a few uh, audio accounts of this, that it really would be impossible to believe. But revival really is the closest thing to heaven on earth. Now, if heaven is our going up to God, Heaven on earth is when God comes down to us. And that's what happens in revival. God comes down on a people in such a way that it's unprecedented. And it's unlike anything else you've ever ever experienced. Now the best account of revival in the Bible is Acts chapter 2. Ten days prior to the event that's recorded here, the resurrected Jesus has ascended back to heaven. 120 of his disciples have gathered together in an upper room in Jerusalem uh, since that time. And they've been praying. And if when you go to Jerusalem and you take some of the tours, if the place they take you to is uh, the real place, is the real upper room where the events of the first part of Acts chapter 2 are described, it's actually a little smaller than this room. So imagine a room that's actually a little smaller than the area where the pews are with a little over twice as many people in those rooms, in that one room. Now the tenth day of their gathering together, these people have been there for ten days, they've been praying together, was the day of Pentecost. This was one of the major Jewish holidays. If you had been alive at this time and referred to Pentecost, you would not think of it as we do today, as a great Christian event when the Spirit of God came in great power. You would have thought of it as one of the three great Jewish holidays of the year. And Jews from all over the Mediterranean world had crowded into Jerusalem for this annual event, and they had boarded up their... Uh, their shops and left their homes in the care of their neighbors and come from all over the Mediterranean world to be at Jerusalem uh, for this particular day, which happened to be on a Sunday this time. But on that day, God sent for the first time His Holy Spirit in great power upon all believers so that for the first time ever, believers had this great burden and desire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And since that morning, every born-again believer is inhabited by the Holy Spirit and indwelled by the Spirit, gifted by the Holy Spirit for service, and that is so from the first moment of faith and forever. But this was the first day that the Holy Spirit came in such great power on all believers. Now, the Spirit of God had always been the one who drew people to believe in God, given them faith, kept them in faith. I mean, David did not give himself faith. Isaiah did not give himself faith and keep himself faithful to God, even perhaps as the legend says he was sawn in two. The Holy Spirit did that. The Holy Spirit always has been at work in all the believers in the Old Testament. 
But what happened at Pentecost was he came in such great power upon all believers in Christ that they had this uh, desire and a new power to share the gospel that had never been there before. Now, in some ways, Pentecost was unique. Let's make that plain. There will never be another Pentecost, like there will never be another incarnation. There will never be another crucifixion, resurrection. But in other ways, Pentecost is a description of what every true revival is like. And that's the perspective from which I want us to see Acts chapter 2 this morning. As I'm convinced it will make plain later, I think there is reason to believe revival may be coming. That some of us may live to see true revival. But when revival does come, what will it look like? How will we distinguish it from other experiences? How will we know, as, as some people think, well, we're living in the midst of revival today. Well, if so, God save us from revival. <laughs> But how will we know the true from the counterfeit? Because Satan only counterfeits that which is true and powerful. Just like today, no one counterfeits nickels, right? If they're going to go to the trouble of counterfeiting, they counterfeit 20s and 50s and 100s. And in the same way, Satan counterfeits great movements of God. And in fact, in America's history, especially the first great awakening, that's what killed it was the counterfeit work of the, of the enemy. So how will we know when what I'm talking about this morning comes? Well, first of all, when revival comes, we won't be able to stop telling of the mighty deeds of God. We won't be able to stop telling of the mighty deeds of God. I take that from the first 11 verses of chapter 2, particularly verses 4 and 11. Verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. In other words, they first heard this noise like a great wind coming, and then there appeared to be this fire coming down from the ceiling, and then like tongues of fire spread out and touched each one of them and set their tongues on fire. Verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now frequently when we encounter this passage, the issue is about these tongues. They were speaking in tongues and what does that mean? Well, it's very clear in this passage that these were known languages because we see in verse 8, how is it we hear them in our own language, our own tongue to which we were born. And then 
Verse 11, we hear them in our own tongues. We are Jews, but we're from all of these lands spoken of in verses 9 through 11. All these different places, but we're all Jews. So we know some Hebrew or Aramaic that they would have spoken in Jerusalem. But we also know the language of the land we were born in. They might have lived in in Italy, for example, and would have known Latin over there. They might have been in a Grecian nation. They would have known Greek. But they also, because they were Jews at home, they were taught the language spoken in Jerusalem. And so they're coming together in Jerusalem. They're saying, wait a minute, we're hearing somebody talk about the language from home. And somebody else said, yeah, we're hearing them talk in our language from home. We're from a different country. What is going on? But what is often overlooked in this discussion about tongues is what they were saying. What they were saying when they're speaking in these languages. And it very clearly says at the end of verse 11, they were speaking the mighty deeds of God. And when revival comes, like these people, we find ourselves unable to stop speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, I have seen just a glimpse of something like this on on an occasion. Like I said, I have never seen true revival. But I have seen like little flashes or glimpses. And on one occasion, I I pastored a Southern Baptist church for 15 years in the suburbs of Chicago. And we came to the point of believing it was God's will for us to build a new building. But it was also God's will, we believe, we not go in in debt for that. And so uh, we had a time together where we asked people to to sacrifice and give. And and we did that. And we had something then to plan with. And so we spent the next uh, three years or so uh, raising money. And then in, in March of the year we were ready to build, we had one more day where we asked people to sacrifice and bring gifts and so forth. And um, the day came, and so did the snow. And I can still remember driving to church that morning and making uh, a left turn onto one of the main roads leading to the church and the back end of the car fishtailing and almost going into the ditch. And as I'm getting control of the car, I remember thinking, Lord, you've got the wrong day. We don't need snow today. We need everybody to be there today because, frankly, people were tired of raising money and especially with nothing to show for it. We were trying to have enough money then to next month to break ground to begin work on this building. And so we needed everybody there. And we needed at least $50,000 to have minimal use of the building. Concrete floors, metal chairs, but it would have heat. We could get a certificate of occupancy. We could use the building. I was praying for $100,000, which is what we needed to put in pews and carpet and basically finish the building. But people were tired of raising money, and the only person I dared mention this $100,000 figure to was our deacon chairman on the Wednesday night when we sat over here in small groups and prayed together. And he said later, I thought you were crazy. But on that Sunday morning, people came at the end of the service. We had a special box prepared. They gave their offering and then went down the hall to have lunch while the money was counted. And I still have a little slip of paper that was given to me to report that the Lord had provided that day $99,000. And when I made that statement, someone got up, walked down the hall, wrote a check for $1,000. And we walked out of there that day with exactly $100,000. Well, we went home. We pulled in the driveway, catty corner across from us, a guy was outside in his yard. I went over there and I said, I have to tell you what God did in our midst today. It was amazing. 
And I told him what happened. We came into the house, opened the door, there was our cat Solomon. I said, Solomon, you're not going to believe this. In all your kitty life, you've never heard anything like this in your life. I talked to the cat. I went past the cat to the phone, picked up the phone, started calling family and telling them what God had done today. We came back on Sunday night and I said, how many of you were compelled to tell someone what God did in your midst this day? And almost everyone there raised their hand. We could not contain it. God had moved so powerfully in our midst, almost every one of us were compelled to speak of the mighty deeds of God. That's what happens when revival comes. God moves so powerfully, flesh and blood cannot contain it. You may be the most shy, the most reluctant witness in the church, but you find that you cannot not talk about what God is doing in your midst. Now, when God does this over a large portion of the country, we have referred to these as great awakenings. There have been three in our nation's history. The first and perhaps most powerful was the first great awakening in the the late 1730s and the second wave in the early 1740s. And one of the prominent figures was Jonathan Edwards, a name I know that you've heard here before, pastor, theologian who's preached the most famous sermon in American history. And it was during this time of the Great Awakening. But he wrote of how passionately people wanted to tell others of the work of God and the gospel, that they would be converted also. He said, persons after their own conversion have commonly expressed an exceeding great desire for the conversion of others. Some have thought they should be willing to die for the conversion of any soul, though one of the meanest of their fellow creatures or the worst of their enemies. And many indeed have been in great distress with desires and longings for it. Who's your worst enemy? Who's that person when you hear their name or you hear their voice, your stomach begins to churn? Now imagine yourself being willing to die to see that person come to Christ. You say, no, Don, I can't imagine that. I know. You've never seen revival. That's why. When revival comes, we won't be able to stop speaking of the mighty deeds of God. We become like that woman at the well in John chapter 4. You remember her? She met Jesus at the well. She has had her past exposed. Jesus says you've had five husbands and you're even now living in an immoral relationship, but her heart has changed. She's born again. She leaves the water pot. She goes back into the town and she does something that was rather unheard of in her day. It says there that John 4, she went to tell the men of the city about Jesus. Now, it was an improper thing in that culture at that time for a woman to approach a man in public and begin a conversation lest it be misconstrued by the man or by those who were watching this. On the other hand, everyone in town already knew what kind of woman she was. And it may have been that she went to the men precisely because the men had secretly come to her in the past. But the most remarkable thing is her message. She says, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. In other words, come and meet this guy who has exposed all of my past. Now, how would you respond to an invitation like that? What if I said, Clancy, I've just met the most remarkable man. He just told me every sin I have ever committed. Come here, I want you to meet him. No thanks. But they were compelled by her testimony to come out of the city. They meet Jesus at the well. And they are converted, and when they come back into town, they find the woman and they say, 
It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Why is she shouting in the streets? Is it because, wow, he is an amazing man. I've never seen anybody who could reveal secrets like this. No, it wasn't that. It wasn't because he had the ability to to inexplicably expose her sins. Rather, he had the power to remove them. She wasn't emphasizing the sinful deeds of her past, but what Acts 2 calls the mighty deeds of God. And in revival, we become like that woman. We don't care what people know about our past. We don't care what's exposed about us as long as we can talk about Jesus so powerfully. That's what revival is like. You are unable to stop speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Though you are the most reluctant, the most shy witness, you want to tell people about Jesus, you want to talk about the Lord, but you find yourself almost unable to do that ever because of circumstances, because of your reluctance, because you're so shy. Even you find yourself unable to stop speaking of the mighty deeds of God. You say, Don, you just don't know me and you don't know my circumstances. No, my friend, you don't know revival. In revival, we are unable to stop speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Second, when revival comes, there is a renewed emphasis on Jesus and a recovery of the gospel. A renewed emphasis on Jesus and a recovery of the gospel. I want to pick this up in verse 22 now. Peter's sermon. All these people gather around. They wonder what is going on. Peter begins to preach starting in verse 14. I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. And what I want to emphasize and want you to listen for is all the references to Jesus in this sermon. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs through which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, and he gives this prophecy about Jesus from David. Then verse 31, speaking of David, it says, He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus... God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When revival comes, there is a renewed emphasis upon Jesus and a recovery of the gospel. And we need that desperately. No longer is preaching seen to be just an emphasis on self-esteem or success or coping with the problems of life or family or doing good or keeping rules or avoiding rules. There may be a place for all of those things in our preaching, but the emphasis needs to be Jesus and a recovery of the gospel of Jesus. This is what distinguishes us, the the preaching and teaching of Christ is what distinguishes us as Christians. That's what we sang just a little while ago. Show us Christ. 
That's what distinguishes us and our message from anyone else in the world. Our message is not just save America. It is Christ. Our message is not just we need better morality. It's Christ. Don't ever teach a Sunday school lesson that would be acceptable in a Jewish synagogue. The Sunday school lesson you taught this morning, teachers, was it possible apart from a crucified Christ? Parents, grandparents, don't just teach your children or grandchildren morals, lest you make little Pharisees out of them. We want to show them their need for Christ, that we're pointing to the heart as we talk to our children, and that their sins are not just something you need to shape up and and do better, but rather that is an indication you need Jesus. And Jesus will help you. And there is so much preaching. There is so much teaching that is void of our distinctive, and that is of Jesus. When revival comes, the gospel becomes a solemn message. Look what Peter said in verse 40. With many other words, this wasn't all his sermon. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So it was a solemn message there. It wasn't necessary for Peter to have just a sermon full of jokes to keep people's interest in the gospel, but rather Jesus and the message of Jesus instill a new confidence that if we would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't have to jazz it up, we don't have to prop it up, that the power of God upon the gospel of Jesus is sufficient to save sinners and to feed the souls of His people. And so there's a new confidence when revival comes in the gospel and not in methods that what we need are better men. And we have a great message and we don't need methods to be the emphasis of what we do. There's an illustration of this in 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul says there, Christ did not send me to baptize. Now just wait a minute, time out. When he says Christ did not send me to baptize, we get our doctrine of baptism from Paul. Okay? And Paul did baptize. But what he is saying is, that isn't the way people get saved. He didn't just send me around to grab people and dunk them and say, okay, there's one more going to heaven. And Hey, come here. And grab this guy and dunk him. And okay, there's another one going to heaven. That's not what he sent me to do. Though baptism is important. And we get our doctrine of baptism from Paul. What he says is he didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not, interesting that the next word is not. He sent me to preach the gospel, comma, not... In cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. If that phrase were not in the Bible, I would not believe it possible to make the cross of Christ void. But you know how we can make the cross of Christ void? By preaching the gospel the wrong way. Notice it's still the gospel. He sent me to preach the gospel, not not preach the gospel a certain way. Not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. There are clever ways of presenting the gospel that void the gospel of its power because the reliance is upon the vehicle, upon the method. And any method of communicating the gospel that causes people to remember the method instead of the message is the wrong method. 
Now, I have said before, and maybe so have you, and there's a grain of truth in it, that, well, we don't want to change the message, we just want to change what? The method. Well, there's some truth in that. But realize, from this passage, there are some methods that don't change the message, but void it of its power. I could tattoo John 3.16 on my chest. The message would never change. What the unchanging message of the gospel. But it would void the cross of its power because it would trivialize the message of the gospel. There are methods that don't change the message, but void it of its power. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. So it's the gospel Not how we present the gospel, not what we do after we present the gospel. It is the gospel that's the power of God and the salvation. And when revival comes, there's a renewed emphasis on the gospel and on the proclamation of Jesus. And it is so easy for what we do in our preaching, in our teaching, to be moral, to be consistent with the Bible, but not related to Jesus. Whenever Paul preached, whenever he wrote, everything, no matter what he talked about, he was always just a step away from the gospel. He could talk about mundane things like how we live in the home, like the marriage relationship. Husbands, love your wives. Good. But what was his example? As Christ loves the church. So even in talking about routine things like husbands and wives, he even related that to the gospel. Everything he said was related to Christ. That's the way we should teach Sunday school. That's the way we should teach our, teach our children, not disconnected, not divorced from the gospel, but as an outgrowth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when revival comes, we get that. When revival comes, we see that. And one of the things I'm most excited about, and in my lifetime I have seen two powerful movings of the Holy Spirit that were large scale, short of revival, but large scale. One was the Jesus movement in the early 70s. With its flaws, God was at work and some great things were done. The other is going on right now and something is typified and a conference is held here in Louisville every other year called Together for the Gospel. There's a parallel organization called the Gospel Coalition. And you have Presbyterians and Baptists, Charismatics, Anti-Charismatics, all unified around the Gospel, working together, coming to conferences together, speaking in one another's churches, cooperating as far as they can. We can't plant churches together. Because ultimately we'd say, well, we're going to baptize, right? Sure, the Bible talks about baptism, so we're going to sprinkle these babies, right? No, we're not, because that's not in the Bible. Our Pentecostal friends would say, yes, it is. So that's why we can't work together in churches, but we can do a lot of things together, like preaching the gospel. And in my lifetime, I have never seen such unity around the gospel by Presbyterians and Baptists, Charismatics, Anti-Charismatics. That is, that is unprecedented. And it's all around the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel unity among gospel-believing Christians has not been seen in my lifetime. And that's one of those clouds the size of a man's hand on the horizon that makes me hopeful we will see revival in our lifetime. Because there's never been anything like this, at least in my lifetime. He said, well, Don, I, I don't know. I've just never seen anything like that. Well, you've never seen revival, that's why. You've never seen churches so centered around the gospel before because you've not seen revival. 
Third, when revival comes, there will be great power and dramatic results accompanying the gospel. Great power and dramatic results will accompany the gospel. Not just dramatic results in terms of crowds and numbers. A lot of organizations and churches can do that that are strangers to the gospel, but accompanying the gospel. You find people asking you what to do, much as they did with Peter in verse 37. Now when they heard this, when they heard the gospel, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do When revival comes, there are many inquirers, people who can't wait for you to come to them. God is at work, and they come to you, and sometimes they don't even even know what to say. Like in the first great awakening, one writer described the scene there in Northampton, Massachusetts, where Jonathan Edwards pastored. It said, a great many people were driven by their distress to seek Edwards' personal counsel. During the winter of 1734 and 35, so many thus came calling on him. It was no longer the tavern, but the minister's house that was thronged far more than the tavern had been wont to be. Imagine that. It's Saturday night. No cars in front of the honky-tonks, no cars at the casinos, and rather, on the street in front of Pastor Luke's house, it's crowded, people are knocking on the door, and they don't even know what to say. They just say, Preacher, we've got to find God. He said, I don't know what it's like where you live, Whitney, but it's not like that up here in Jaytown. Folks, it's not like that anywhere unless revival comes. But when revival comes, there is great power, dramatic results given to the gospel. Look at verse 41. So there, then those who had received his word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. Folks, in the second great awakening, excuse me, what we call often called the third great awakening or, or the prayer revival of 1857 and 58, in a matter of six months, something like 10 to 15 percent of the country was converted, baptized, and added to churches. And you can go to the archives of the Chicago newspapers. You can go to the archives of the Denver newspapers and read how the businesses in those downtown districts stopped during the noon hour, every day, to have prayer meetings. The employees demanded it. The customers demanded it. People weren't shopping anyway. They were all going to these noontime business meetings in the business districts. That happened in this country. And you can read it in the papers of Chicago and Denver and places it started on Fulton Street in New York City. Great power. Dramatic results accompanying the gospel. You say, I've never heard that before. I've never heard anything like that in my life. I know. You've never seen revival. That's why you've not heard of it. Verse 43 speaks of a sense of awe. It, it, was, it was atmospheric. People would come to hear the preaching of the gospel. And where revival had come, it was almost atmospheric. People would pray and almost fearful of opening their eyes for the sense of God Himself were going to be standing right in front of them. This is another one of those things which just occasionally I've had a small glimpse of something like this. I remember a conference I went to. This would have been the late 80s, early 90s, I guess. John MacArthur happened to be preaching at this particular conference. 
And it was an interesting experiment. I'd heard it, you know, mostly on, uh, exclusively on the radio. I closed my eyes and it sounded exactly like I was listening to the radio. But I opened my eyes and it was just remarkably different. And as he preached, he's preaching on the book of Titus, I remember. Tears are coursing down my eyes and splashing onto my lap. Now that had happened before. But what was unusual this time is I did not want to stop long enough to do this for fear I'd miss something. Just letting the tears run down my face, splash onto my lap. And after he finished preaching, people just sat there. Some people sat there for an hour before they could get up and leave. God had come in such great power, this sense of awe that was almost atmospheric. My preacher hero of the 20th century is the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I teach a class where we just read and discuss the biographies of Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones. I believe Luke was in that class, in fact, the last time I taught him. But uh, there are still people alive who heard Dr. Lloyd-Jones who basically uh, quit preaching due to infirmity in the mid-70s. He died on March 1st of 1981. So there's still a lot of people alive who, who heard him. And I love to ask them what it was like. And I, I can think of two friends in particular, one of whom I twice asked to tell what I'm about to tell. Ask him to tell this publicly. Ask him the second time to make sure I got it right the first time because it's so uncharacteristic of him. He said the first time he ever heard him he, in, in London, he climbed up in the, into the uh, balcony up here in this big 1,500-seat auditorium just about the size of uh, Southern Seminary's chapel. And he said, this little man came out and began to preach. And he said, it was as though, he said, I, I became oblivious to everything else around me. And there was such power given to the preaching of the gospel. He said, I hate to use this kind of language, but the only way I know how to describe it is it was like an out-of-the-body experience. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to have this guy who's now in his 80s, I wanted him to tell this story again was to make sure I got it right because believe me, this is the last guy in the world who would use the phrase an out-of-body experience uh, to talk about himself. But he says, when I finally sort of came to myself after this event, I looked around, I was the only person left in this 1,500-seat auditorium that had been packed a little earlier. And I've talked to other people who said it, it, was, it was electrifying to hear. Now, it wasn't always like that. But it was often like that. And even today, I mean, all of his recordings are now available uh, to listen to for free on the Internet. It's interesting. They all began exactly the same way. The words to which I should like to call your attention will be found in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 8. You listen to it and you think, well, this, this is pretty good. But it's not electrifying. The difference is, you had to be there. You, you can't get the Holy Spirit on a recording. You can't trap the Holy Spirit into, the, into digits and tapes and People say it was electrified. That's what it's like when revival comes. Great power, dramatic results accompanying the gospel. In our country's second great awakening, which began in about 1798 and continued about 1830, the longest of the three, 
There was a leading figure named Azahel Nettleton who was an evangelist. And he frequently saw scenes like I'm about to describe to you where there's this great power and dramatic results given to the gospel in terms of people inquiring what to do, wanting to be saved. April 24th, 1820, in Nassau, New York, a few miles southeast of Albany, a woman was converted during the course of the message. And modern biographer describes this scene after the message. She said, no sooner had, or, or Nettleton the preacher said, no, no sooner had I closed and stepped from the stage than she came near taking her husband by the hand. And she urged him to come to Christ. It was like a two-edged sword. It pierced him to the heart. At this moment, the anxious ones assembled around me and took me some of the hand and, and some of the arm and some of the coat exclaiming, don't leave us. What shall I do? What shall I do? Nearly the whole congregation tarried. Those who could not come near stood, some on the seats, some on the sides of the pews, to hear and to see. And that was common. And unlike today, where we can see these televangelists on TV who have these crowds, and have people come up on the platform and they touch them and they fall over and so forth. If you go to one of those events and you go up there, you kind of expect that. You've been conditioned to it. You've seen it on television many, many times. They didn't have that kind of conditioning in 1820. When someone would come to town, they would have heard of him. He was famous, but they had no idea. There was no expectation of how you know they should respond, how other congregations have responded. God came in great power, dramatic results accompanying the gospel. Now, if someone were saved here this morning, we would say, God did that. And that's true. And if God is the one who saves people, it is just as possible for God to save a hundred at once as one, isn't it? Or a thousand. Like we see on this very day where 3,000 people were converted in one day. You may say, well, theoretically, Don, I guess that is so, but I've never heard of anything like that in, in my lifetime. Well, I know. You've never seen revival. That's why you've not seen it or heard it. But when revival comes, great power, dramatic results are given to the gospel. Fourth and finally, when revival comes, there will be sacrificial and irresistible devotion to the things of God and to Christian living. Sacrificial and irresistible devotion to the things of God and to Christian living. That's what we see in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And they were continually devoting themselves, continually devoting themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They couldn't get enough of coming to the temple, hearing the apostles teach the Word of God. And then they would fellowship, not just socialize. That's talking about news, weather, sports, work, and family. They would fellowship. That's koinonia. They were talking about God and the things of God and the breaking of bread. They ate together and had the Lord's Supper together. And they prayed together. And these things became their life. And everything else became secondary. That's the way it is when revival comes. You don't have to beg people to come to church. God is there. Nothing else matters. I mean, if you knew that Jesus Himself was going to be present bodily in this room tonight at 6 o'clock, you think you could make it? 
but what if your favorite football team is playing? <laughs> well, what if Jesus came at 6 o'clock and he started preaching and, you know, 10 o'clock comes, 11 o'clock comes. You think you're going to be there going... No, if he's here all night, you're going to be here all night, right? If he's here till in the morning and you think, man, i got to go to work or I'll lose my job, you, you think you'd worry about that? No, you'd say, let him take my job. <laughs> let him have my job. What am I living for? I'm living for Jesus. I'm living to know Jesus. And here he is. That's what it's like when revival comes. It's almost as though when you pray, if you open your eyes, Jesus himself is standing there. There's this almost palpable, atmospheric sense of the presence of God. People just walking into the building since God is here. And they don't want to leave. And that's actually one of the problems with revival. I mentioned earlier the Jesus movement uh, in the the early uh, 1970s. In fact, uh, many point to just over here in Asbury near uh, uh, Lexington as the starting place of that. Uh, At uh, Asbury Seminary, they had a chapel service which began... Just as this service began in a normal, typical way, but it didn't end for three days. Unexpectedly, people stayed around the clock for three days because the power of God seemed so real. Students were asked to come from there and speak in other places. They went to Wheaton College. Again, a three-day kind of event happened. Some went to Southwestern Seminary, our sister school down in Fort Worth, where a friend of mine, an older man now, who's like a father in the ministry to me, Dr. T.W. Hunt, was a professor there at the time. And he's a man who's very precious to me. He was telling me about that and the, the desire people had to get together and pray during those days. And so one night, he said, he told his students, you want to come, come to my house and pray? So he says, Don, 7 o'clock, we knelt down to pray and we prayed and we looked up and it was daylight outside. Nobody had said, hey, let's have an all-night prayer meeting. We just prayed and looked up and it was daylight. We, we went home and shaved and showered, went back to school, went to work. They came to my house the next night and prayed. We knocked at 7 o'clock and we looked up and it was daylight again. Time just vanished. It's, just, it's like being in heaven. God was there and nothing else mattered and we lost all sense of, of, of time. They simply experienced the sacrificial and irresistible devotion to meeting with God and with prayer. And in fact, that's one of the things pastors have to be careful about. People will absolutely wear themselves out. That is often one of the things that that kind of can, can kill a revival meeting because people's bodies, as it were, just almost become overwhelmed by their spirits and finally their bodies can take no more. People will come night after night after night after night and stay all night many times. And of course, eventually you just can't keep up that, that kind of pace. But Martin Lloyd-Jones himself, in a sermon on the subject, spoke of how there's this sacrificial and irresistible devotion to the things of God and the Christian living. He says, this now becomes for them the one thing that absorbs them. If they meet anyone, they talk about it at once. Everybody's talking about it. It is the main topic of conversation. It is the thing that absorbs all their interests. Remember our first characteristic of revival? We're unable to stop speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They desire to be together now and to talk about these things. They begin to praise God and to sing hymns to His glory. And then they begin to pray. And there they are, hour after hour, 
night after night, longing to finish work so that they might get together with other people who'd experienced this movement of the Spirit of God. And that, of course, in turn leads them to have great concern about others who are outside, who don't know these things. So the love of God melts into love for others, and that's what we see in verses 44 and 45. All those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them all as anyone might have need. Now remember the context of this. Jews from all over the Mediterranean world had boarded up their shops, put their homes in the care of neighbors, had made their way to Jerusalem, right, for this Jewish event. And what happened to these Jewish people at this Jewish event? They met God. They were converted. The Holy Spirit came down. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, and they said, I ain't going home. Let them have my house. Let them take my business. God is here. I'm staying here. So now you've got all these homeless people in Jerusalem. You've got all these homeless people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. So the Christians who lived in Jerusalem began selling property and possessions in order to provide for the basic needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ there in Jerusalem. Some say that's communism. No, communism says what's yours is mine. This is Christianity. What's mine is yours. A love of God melted into love for others. It was a revival. Now let me close with these three words of application here. First, Acts 2 shows us that when God comes in revival, He can change everything in a moment. He can change a heart. He can change a church. He can change a town. He can change a country. He can change a world. And no matter how depraved things become in the world no matter how much not only our nation but the whole world declines morally as long as God is alive there is hope because God can change the world Pentecost teaches us that in one hour everything can be different revival sometimes comes gradually but sometimes like Pentecost things change in an hour This coming Lord's Day when Pastor Luke is back and talks about Nairobi and preaches the gospel in that, the power of God can come. And this church and this town would never be the same because of what happens in one worship service. Paul was only three weeks in Thessalonica, but we're told there the great things that happened in Acts 17.4. God can change everything in one hour. Second, I believe there is hope for revival. That there is hope for revival. David Bryant, president of Concerts of Prayer International, wrote, We are standing in the vortex of what may be the most significant prayer movement in the history of the church. Many of you know the name of Henry Blackaby. He said, I know of at least 130 global, 130 global prayer networks of people seeking revival. And the late David Barrett, a missionary statistician and consultant to the International Mission Board, said that there are 150 million people in the world committed to praying every day for revival. And that 20 million people say that prayer for revival is their primary calling in the body of Christ. And the old Puritan commentator Matthew Henry, many of you have his commentary in your homes. Matthew Henry said, when God is about to do a great thing among his people, He sets them a-praying. Well, folks, God has set His people a-praying, and He's doing so like He has never done in the history of the world. And it's not for nothing. 
Now, I don't know that God would be pleased to use any of our modern technology. But I know this, the Bible says on multiple occasions that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like waters cover the sea. We sing a song, Jesus shall reign from shore to shore. Now there are different views of the end times that talk about how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, but it's all agreed. The day will come when Jesus will reign from shore to shore and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Like I said, I don't know God would be pleased to use our satellite technology and so forth, but if God were to come in revival anywhere on the planet today, we've got little devices that could show pictures of it in a few minutes. You talk about videos going viral on YouTube or wherever. We have little devices that can that can show that can from which we can hear God at work all over the world. So if we woke up this morning, we saw these horrible pictures of things in Colorado and the flooding that is there. We can see things happening in Syria. We can think, see things happening with events all over the world in one newscast on our television. In the same way people all over the world are seeing that. If God were pleased to use it, if God sent revival, the knowledge of that revival could cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And like I said, never in my lifetime have I seen Christians united around the gospel like I have seen. Never have I seen people praying worldwide for revival like now. Yes, in many ways things are worse than they have ever been before. But as long as God is alive, as long as the gospel is preached, as long as the Holy Spirit is active in the world, there is hope for revival. And God can change hearts all over the world just as quickly as God changed your heart, Christian. Third and lastly, will you pray for revival? Will you join those all over the world praying for revival? When revival comes, it, God doesn't always send revival just like a blanket over every area. And that every church is equally touched. In that famous sermon, the most famous in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God... Jonathan Edwards had preached that before and nothing happened. And he was preaching this sermon not in his own town but in another. And what is often unknown with this sermon, a sermon in which he couldn't even finish actually, and there were, there were posts, you know, holding up the roof in there, and people began to cling to those posts and cry out. There were times he had to stop preaching, the screaming was so loud. Now folks, this is in a time when people were more reserved in worship than you are. Okay? This is a time where people, you didn't make a peep in church. Okay? And these people were screaming out and clutching the pillars, fearful they were going to drop into hell right there. And they just finally had to, Edwards had to stop preaching. And ministers had to go out and, and minister to people. What's often unknown is that, is that the night before there were people who had prayed all night that God would send revival to their town because he had sent revival to other towns and not theirs. If God sends revival to this city, there's no promise He sends revival to this church. So will you pray for revival? Let's pray.
Oh God, it is not by might, it's not by power, it's by your spirit, says the Lord, that anything of any benefit can be done for your glory. That if anything happens from this sermon today, you do it, Lord. Anything of lasting benefit or value, it's your work. It's not education, it's not experience, it's not eloquence, it is the Spirit of God. And Lord, we would ask that you do great things. We, we don't want it to be that we do not have simply because we do not ask. We ask great things of a great God. We ask that you would glorify yourself by sending revival today, even to this church, to this town, Lord, to this nation, to the whole world. May we see the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let us live to see such things. And I pray, Lord, you would raise up within this church people committed to pray for the Spirit of God to fall and a spirit of revival. Now, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who finds their heart strangely warm, the Spirit of God moving upon their heart as never before, awakening them to the fact that they don't know Jesus, they are strangers to the gospel. Oh, I pray you would draw them to yourself right now, that you would make Jesus irresistibly beautiful, and they would want to run to Christ in their hearts. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name and for your glory.